0: Turn then, please, brothers and sisters, to our text this morning, which comes from 1 Thessalonians. We'll be beginning in chapter 4, considering verses 1 and 2. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Well, driving... In Wisconsin during the winter months where there is snow and ice on the roads can cause things to go from good to bad quite abruptly. We're all aware of that. You can be driving down the street minding the speed limits. You can be driving carefully minding the road trying to navigate around the slickness. But it just takes a moment. And before you know it, you've fallen into a ditch. Others perhaps don't take the speed limits or the conditions very seriously. We've all seen people like that, haven't we? Just flying by on the icy road, thinking to themselves, well, I have this nice big SUV, you know, it's a four-wheel drive. I'll be fine. But they aren't. Others perhaps, as they're driving, take their eyes off the road aren't paying attention. And before you know it, as they look up, they're veering off and it's too late to turn away. And boom, they're in a ditch. Yet, brothers and sisters, no one wakes up and says that it is their purpose to fall into a ditch. It just it happens. It happens. And I think what I've described here is exactly what is going on in so many Christian circles today. People falling into ditches. And I lay this primarily at the feet of ministers, for it is ministers who have been entrusted with the gospel. It is ministers who have been entrusted with the people of God and have been told to feed the people. And so I don't think that they are directing people into a ditch with malicious intent. I don't think they've said of themselves, I want to fall into this ditch or I want to fall into that ditch. But the fact of the matter is, is that they have. They've fallen into a ditch. And as a result, congregations go along with them. And that ditch is often of two varieties when we speak about the topic in which Paul addresses this morning, that topic of sanctification. It's either the ditch of antinomianism Or it's the ditch of legalism. Antinomianism or legalism? The antinomian says, Christ died for my sins. I now live under grace, not the law. And so how I live or what I do with my life after that really doesn't matter. My sins are forgiven. When the Father sees me, he sees Christ. The legalist says, you have to do X, Y, and Z if you want to have real favor and real and, and be seen as righteous before God. The legalist puts a, a fence around the Scriptures. And they bind it upon their people's consciences and tell them, you have to follow these rules and these laws which I have created. They say, no drinking. Don't touch alcohol. Because... If you have one drink, it can lead to sin. Some of you may have even heard someone say, you shouldn't have a TV in your house. Because having a TV in your house, that can, that can lead to sin. But they have no biblical warrant for saying any of this. And we've probably all experienced and ran into people like this, who believe this, or ministers who believe this, and who taught this. Yet some of you may have even heard this charge of legalism being leveled against those of us in the Reformed faith. Those of us who confess that the law of God is still binding upon us as a rule of life. Yet this is a bad argument. Because what is it that we just described as legalism? Legalism is adding to the law of God. It's adding to the law of God. Like the Pharisees did. And not allowing the, the lame to be healed on the Sabbath. But you can't be a legalist. Nor is it legalism to obey the law of God. For this, brothers and sisters, is what pleases God. And if obeying the law is legalism, well then guess what? Christ was the biggest legalist of them all. For Christ obeyed the law perfectly. He obeyed the law perfectly. Now obviously, we do want to caution, we do want to say, That we don't obey the law as a means to attain righteousness. We don't obey the law as a way to find favor with God. Yes, we ought to differentiate the law from faith when we talk about justification. But it is very appropriate when we discuss sanctification to speak about the law and to obey the law. Because we understand as Christians that this is our guide for how we ought to live the Christian life. And you see there's this balance that is so often missed today. Legalism leads you into the ditch to your right. Antinomianism leads you in the ditch to the left. And so we must be careful to maintain this straight road, this healthy balance which Scripture teaches. And you can often hear Who is the legalist and who is the antinomian in preaching today as well, can't we? You see, the antinomian spends all their time preaching grace and faith and forgiveness, which are all beautiful truths of the Christian religion, aren't they? And they should often and always be preached and proclaimed. But so also should the law and the necessity of good works. The legalist, They'll spend their whole time telling you what you need to do. They preach law, law, law. You must do this. You must do that. And they make you feel guilt and they give you no grace. They don't tell you about forgiveness of sins. They don't tell you how you ought to have assurance of your salvation in Christ. But what we seek to do here, brothers and sisters, is to provide something that is balanced. Something that is true to the biblical testimony that we have. And that is, yes, we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. We have been redeemed, which is a a whole work of God. And we will one day be glorified. But in the meantime, we aren't to just sit here and do our own thing. We are not the masters of our own destiny. We don't get to direct our story. In the meantime, brothers and sisters, we are called to a particular life a life that is pleasing to God, a life that is found in Christ, a life lived in the grace of God while obeying His divine commands which He sets forth as our guide. This is the proper balance I'm talking about. We can think of it akin to a a GPS. We all know what what a GPS is. Even those who are just getting their license, they know what a, a GPS is. You plug in some coordinates, the destination that you want to get to, and it takes you there. It says if this is where you're planning to go, then you must hop on this highway, you must get off on this exit, you must make this right, and you must make this left. The law serves a similar purpose in the Christian's life. It says this is the manner of life one lives who is in Christ... Because you are traveling the road of holiness. And your destination is perfect holiness. We are on the road of holiness, brothers and sisters. We're plotting and traveling along until we get perfect holiness. This is our call, brothers and sisters. Be holy as your Father who is in heaven is holy. And it is in His divine commandments that are the reflection of His holy character. This is why for the life of me, I can't understand why people want to disregard the Ten Commandments. Why they tell their congregations, this was just for Israel. Well, no wonder then the law isn't preached at all. If it was just for them, why preach it? What relevance does it have in our life? Yet others who want to avoid the antinomian ditch, they don't like the word antinomian, And so they say, no, 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 we don't obey the law of God, the moral law, but what we obey is the law of Christ. We obey the law of Christ. But newsflash, the law of Christ is the moral law. The law of Christ is the moral law. And this fact being missed is one big reason for deficient teaching in churches today. That abiding nature of the moral law is the teaching that the Thessalonians received, it is the teaching that the Reformed uh, uh, received during the time of the Reformation and it is the teaching that we receive here. And that is why the question of how we ought to please God is such an important one and one that you should know the answer to because it is a weighty matter, an important matter because we were not placed here for the reason that so many people think and that is to please themselves. We are not placed here to please ourselves. No, if you are a believer in Christ, you must please God. It is not an option. It is is not, will I please God or won't I please God? It is you must please God or you are not a believer. You must please God or you are not a believer. Because to please God is the Christian's purpose. And it is the Christian's purpose in life described to us by Paul here in verses 1 and 2 that we will consider this morning. And we will consider it under three points. The first is the Christian's purpose is to walk and please God. The second is our purpose is to grow in our walking and in our pleasing of God. And the third is the Christian's purpose is to follow Christ's instruction. So point one, our purpose is to walk and please God. This is what Paul says in verse 1. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Remember from last week, Paul finishes his prayer in which he asks the Father to allow him to direct his steps back to the saints in Thessalonica. He prays to God that God would increase their love for one another and for all people. And he prays also that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness. Right? He attributes all that work to the work of God. But then, here in verse 1, he, he turns to the saints. And he says, now, it's not for you to just sit idle by now. You must be engaged in the Christian life. Paul, in fact, says in Verse 7 of this chapter. After his call to the sanctified life in verses 1 and 6, why ultimately we must be engaged in this Christian life. Look at verse 7. He says, For God has called us not to impurity, but to holiness. It is that call to holiness, brothers and sisters, that is the goal. And so if holiness is the goal, what Paul says to the saints in verse 1 is a whole lot more than just a sweet suggestion to the saints. It's not just, hey, saints, it would be nice if you guys walked and pleased God. And this language is a whole lot forceful than that as well. Because this word, which is rendered for us in our English Standard Versions as ought, means, is necessary. This word translated ought means, is necessary. And so we can read verse 1 like this. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how it is necessary to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You see, this walking and this pleasing isn't a choice. Paul says it is necessary for you if you are a Christian. Think of it like this. I try to liken it, give you an example. Liken it to something. Think of it like a a heart surgeon who doesn't perform heart surgery. You would say to that person, well, what did you go to school for? wasn't your purpose to perform heart surgery, and yet you don't perform heart surgery. Isn't heart surgery a necessary ingredient to be a heart surgeon? It is, isn't it? And so they can't really claim to be who it is that they say that they are. Yet at the same time, the, doing a heart surgery isn't the thing that makes them a heart surgeon. You understand what I'm saying? So their, their purpose as a heart surgeon is to do heart surgery. We can liken that to sanctification. Right? But it's not the heart surgery that they perform That makes them a heart surgeon. They're a heart surgeon before they walk into the ER to do the surgery. We can liken that to justification. They're justified so that they can then walk and serve their purpose. For the Christian, our purpose, God has called us into His kingdom to do a multitude of things. One is which to walk and to please God. And so if you aren't doing that, You can't claim to be a Christian. You can't substantiate the truthfulness of that claim because you're not fulfilling the purpose. Yet at the same time, walking and pleasing God isn't the thing that makes you a Christian. It isn't the thing that justifies you because you're justified so that you can walk. There's a distinction between justification and sanctification. There is that balance that we need to uphold. And what does this walking and pleasing do? Well, this walking and pleasing does a lot of things. One, it confirms to the believer that our calling and that our election is sure. This is what Peter teaches us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. It also uh, um, helps to gain others. It attracts others to the Christian faith. Others see your good works and they glorify God who is in heaven. This is what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Yet you see that these works result from the Holy Spirit inflaming our hearts to walk and to please God. For the, the gift of the Spirit is that very thing. It is a, a gift given only to those who are Christ's. Because only they can obey the law. Only they have, have the heart to delight as David did in obeying the law of God. Yet, brothers and sisters, if you recall from earlier when I, when I mentioned these ditches, I brought up two ditches, the antinomian ditch and the legalist ditch. But I actually left one ditch out. And I brought up those two ditches first because I was dealing with, with Christians and the ditches that Christians fall into. But there is one other ditch that the secular world falls into. And that is the ditch of self-righteousness. The ditch of self-righteousness. You see, they think that they can produce good works, that they can do what is pleasing to God apart from Christ. They try to tell us what morality is. They try to tell us how we ought to believe and how who we ought to follow. But this is nothing more than self-righteousness. They take it upon themselves to direct others in what good living is. They create a, a new moral norm, and yet they don't understand it's a norm that they themselves cannot even bear. And so they fall into the ditch as well as everyone else who follows after them. Not realizing that the law to the unbeliever is a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing. It's a mirror showing to us our wretchedness. And still, they try to suppress that image that's staring back at them in the mirror instead of repenting for their sin and turning to Christ. It's only when they fall to their knees out of godly sorrow for their sin and they seek the favor of God through Christ that they will be given the Spirit who then will likewise teach them and guide them and incline their hearts to be able to walk in a manner worthy of God as He has done for you and I here if we are believers. And so we see the Christian's purpose is to walk and to please God. And this is a necessary result of true faith. But is that all He has called us to? No. We aren't to stop there. It isn't as some might say, oh, I've, I've given my life to Christ, I've changed. I've altered some of my, my bad behavior and now I'm done. Now I'm done. Yet sadly, this is how so many people who would consider themselves Christians think. We all probably have friends that we've known, whether it be a year, five years, ten years, twenty years, fifty years. And from year one they said that they were a believer to year five, ten, twenty, fifty, we see no difference. There is no change. There is no transformation. This is not the life that God has called us to, brothers and sisters. This is point two. Our purpose is to grow in walking and to grow in pleasing God. This is the message that Paul gives to the Thessalonians. He says that it's necessary that you walk and please God, but not only is that necessary, it's also necessary that you grow in your walking and in your pleasing God. There is this increase that is to be obvious in every believer's life and this ought to be occurring constantly. A constant growth in your life. And so I ask you here today, think back to when you were first converted. And do you see that change and that transformation in your own life? We have to think about that. We have to look at ourselves in the mirror. Quiet time alone. Let's ask ourselves that. Do I see continual growth? And that means, brothers and sisters, that if we want this growth, We must turn to the Lord in prayer and thanksgiving. Don't expect to grow if you aren't thankful for what the grace of God has already given to you. Yet if you are aware that it is this growth that God desires and that God is the fountain of all grace, then you must turn to Him for the grace that you need in order to grow, in order to walk with Him. We must ask Him for understanding that we might discern His revealed will for us in our life. And so we aren't to grow comfortable with the level of knowledge that we have. If God calls us to grow, remaining static should worry us. Remaining stale should worry us. Progress to perfection is the goal. Progress to perfection. Continued growth in holiness until the return of Christ where then we will be made perfectly holy. And so whether you continue to progress is really an indicator for us where our heart, our heart lies. Right? For you do what you love, don't you? You do what you love. I mean, think about it with a, a child who loves a sport. We'll say basketball. What is it that you always see that child doing? He's always shooting hoops in the backyard. When he's walking around the neighborhood, he's bouncing the basketball. He's at home watching basketball on TV. We as Christians are to continually be growing. And this growth comes through God and His appointed means. And so how do we grow? The same way that the the little child who plays basketball does. We must be exercising ourselves in those things God has called us to. We must be reading Scripture daily. We must be praying daily. We must be singing to God. We must be worshiping God. These are all things that we have been called to do in order to grow. So that when people see us, just like when they see that kid and they say, it's obvious that kid loves basketball. When they see us, when we're always occupied with the things of the Lord, people will look at us and they'll say to their friends, yeah, he's a Christian. That person loves the Lord. And yet some people will say, usually those who use liberty as a, as a, a veil and a cover for sin, would say, well, I don't care what people think anyway. Who cares what someone thinks about me? if they think I'm a Christian or not? And to some degree, that's true. To some degree, that's true. We aren't to care what people think. But then to another degree, we are to care what people think, aren't we? Let me tell you what I mean by this. If you're living the Christian life, you will upset people. You will make people upset with you. You will make people mad. You will, people will hate you and dislike you if you are living the Christian faith. And for that, we are not to care. For we please who? We please God. We don't please man. Yet, what will Paul say later in chapter 4, verse 12? Look down to verse 12. Paul says, all of this, he's instructing all of this, so that you may walk properly before outsiders so that you will walk properly before outsiders. And so you see, in another way, we are to care what people think. We should care that as we live the Christian life, we ought to be representing God in a way that is honorable. We ought to care that our conduct is holy and blameless so that we don't allow people opportunity to mock our God and to ridicule our God and to blaspheme His name because of us. Rather, we ought to endeavor to be His instruments that bring glory and honor to Him before outsiders. And we do this, brothers and sisters, by, by bearing fruit. And Paul wants us to not only keep bearing fruit, but to do it more and more and more. The good tree never fails to produce good fruit in an abundance of it. Is this our aim as Christians? To produce fruit. In mass. It should be. Because we were saved for a purpose. We were saved for a purpose. As the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so walking and pleasing God is a Christian's purpose. Growing continually in our walk and in our pleasing of God is our purpose. And yet Paul says one other thing is our purpose. Look at verse 2. He says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Here is point three. Our purpose is to heed the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our purpose is to obey our Lord's instruction. This is the message that Paul is conveying to the saints here in chapter four. He says, as you have received, continue to do this. Continue to walk and please God. Continue to grow more and more in your walking and in your pleasing of God. And you know why you are to do this. Because this instruction came to you from our Lord. And so they were to listen. Paul tells them, don't listen on account of what I tell you. Listen to the instruction you are given and how you are to please God because these words are God's words to you. It is Christ who is instructing you. Paul is simply an appointed ambassador to communicate God's Word. This is what so many Christians, again, are missing today. They say, oh, we don't have to follow this part of Scripture because it's just some guy who wrote it. And perhaps that was true of them in their time, but in our time, things have changed and it's no longer true in our time. But what did Peter say in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God's Word is true and it is relevant and it cannot change even if we do or culture does. You see, brothers and sisters, we do not conform Scripture to our own lives, but rather we are called by God to conform our life to Scripture for they are the words of God and we are to heed His instruction. It is our purpose as Christians to reflect the moral character that God breathed Word has called, has called us to, not to shift with the world. Paul in chapter 4 is laying out for us moral instruction. This world disregards it, thinks they know better, as Scripture's old and dated, but they don't understand That this scripture, the words of God eventually recorded in these 66 books of the Bible are living and they are vibrant and they are for us today. What does the author of Hebrews say in chapter 4 verse 12? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts And the intentions of the heart. And so, brothers and sisters, all the words of both testaments are God's words to us. So often we hear, well, the New Testament is for the Christian. And the Old Testament is for the Israelites, for the Jews, for the Hebrew Hebrew Scriptures. No, brothers and sisters. The Scriptures, all of them, from Genesis to Revelation, are the Christian Scriptures. It is God's instruction for us in training and reproof and correction and all teaching. And so we are to obey His instruction. Because look at what Paul says of those who don't heed His instruction in verse 8. Look down to verse 8 of chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore, who disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. If you disregard the instruction, Paul says, don't worry, you're not disregarding my word. You're disregarding the word of God. And so, brothers and sisters, here today, we must be diligent to heed our Lord's instruction which He provided for us through His apostles and through His prophets. And the good news, brothers and sisters, is this, that we have been enabled to obey the instruction of our Lord. That is good news. This is the promise of the new covenant enacted in the blood of Christ. This is what Jeremiah 31 tells us, isn't it? That He will write the law upon our hearts. The law that was written in the heart of Adam, yet was obscured and shattered in the sinfulness, in the fall, in the curse. But now it has been written anew upon the hearts of all those who believe. And it wasn't just given to us again and told us to again, We'll now obey again. It wasn't done that way. It was given to us. It was written anew. And now He has given us His Spirit to obey. This is what Ezekiel says in chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, in describing the new covenant. We read this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And listen to this. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What a great promise we have, brothers and sisters. And this promise was fulfilled in Christ. Having fulfilled the old covenant, and now is ascended on high. He is a mediator of a better covenant and acted on better promises. What a beautiful sound that ought to be to the Christian's ear. The covenant that we have been made a part of is not like the old one. We aren't told to walk and to please God and to grow and to obey and not given the means to do so. But we are those who are in the New Covenant who now all have the ability to obey our Lord's commands. We have the ability to live out the purpose God has called us to. Yet brothers and sisters, let us be cautioned and reminded. It's important to keep that distinction between justification and sanctification. Let us... Be reminded of that so that we don't fall into a ditch either. Because you can confound the two like the antinomian and make them one. Or you can so tear them asunder and make them two like the legalist. Makes them like two different things. Oh, you're justified but now it's up to you to be sanctified. And then you'll receive eternal life. No. We cannot do that, brothers and sisters. We must keep that healthy, scriptural, biblical balance that we have in Scripture. Right? We have been justified through faith in Christ, declared righteous right then and there. Yet, we are now, through the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, being sanctified in order that we live out our purpose to walk, to please, to grow, and to obey our heavenly King. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank You that You have made us members of Your new covenant in the blood of Christ Jesus. That You have given us Your Spirit and that Your Spirit now works with inside of us to do that which You will for us to do. That which is pleasing in Your sight. Father, we ask that You would grant to us a greater desire to obey You, to walk in a manner that is pleasing before God. That You would give us a more ardent desire uh, that you would inflame our hearts more, that you would warm us to the idea of continued growth so that we would be those who would please you in this evil age. And Father, we ask all this in Christ's name we pray. Amen.